Forgiveness is one of those things that if you know anything about Christianity is absolutely central to Christianity, isn't it? Like, you know anything about it, you go, oh, forgiveness. Uh, it's, well, I could ask another question in addition to some of the other tricky questions we've asked. Um, how many of you find it easy to forgive? Well, it depends what it is that you're being asked to forgive, doesn't it? Like some things are really easy to forgive. You know, you cut me off in traffic. I forgive you. Other things are much, much, much harder to forgive. You failed to be there for me when I was growing up and betrayed me and left me with a legacy of disorganized or anxious attachment that has sabotaged my every relationship going forward and left me self-medicating with alcohol uh, all of my adult life. How do you forgive that? And how do you forgive someone who's dead? Both my parents are dead. My brother's dead. They all, the three of them all hurt me terribly when I was growing up. I mean, terrible. How do I forgive them? How do you forgive the people who've hurt you in the past who uh, are dead? How do you forgive people who... Uh, what does forgiveness look like when... The person isn't in your life anymore. They may not be dead, but they've just moved on. What does that look like? Are we called to forgive somebody who won't admit that they're, they've done anything wrong against you? Like, that's interesting, isn't it? I, I actually will probably just keep asking these questions for the next 20 minutes and then sit down because <laughs> there's just so many questions, aren't there? It's not easy, this topic of forgiveness. But I found in Genesis, in the story of um, Joseph, I found some fascinating resources and, and ideas and a picture um, of, uh, to help us think about this. You might recall the story of Joseph from Sunday school or from your own Bible reading. Joseph was um, uh, his old man's favorite son. He had 12 siblings and uh, 11 brothers and a sister. And he was a, he was a jerk when he was growing up. He, you know, in a, in a dysfunctional family with favorites. And um, he really wasn't a very pleasant teenager and uh, eventually his older brothers got sick of him, so they decided to, uh, initially they were going to murder him. Then they thought, ah, maybe let's not murder him, let's just sell him into slavery. So um, they took him, he, they, they dug a pit and they were just going to leave him to die in the pit. But then they thought, ah, oh, we'll sell him into slavery. Sold him to some slave traders who, who took him to Egypt down south from where they were living in Canaan. And... Um, uh, and then he had a career in Egypt that included, as Paul talked about last week, uh, he, he became very successful working for this guy called Potiphar. Uh, slaves in the ancient world could become highly esteemed, powerful, and even wealthy if they were attached to the right master. So he, he had a very significant role managing the master's affairs. Um, Potiphar's wife decided that um, uh, she wanted to... 
she wanted a full service slave, so to speak, and uh, he wasn't that keen. So he fled, ran out, grabbed, left his cloak there in the bedroom and ran out. And Potiphar's wife uh, falsely accused him of rape. And uh, there wasn't much of a trial. He gets thrown in jail. When he's in jail, um, God is with him. And this is the key, right? When you read Joseph's story, all these ups and downs. God is with him. God is with him. God is with him. And even in jail, he, uh, he hears, uh, he's able to interpret some dreams of some fellow inmates. The inmates get out. The Pharaoh has a dream. No one can interpret it. The, the, um, the inmates and Pharaoh's ex-inmates say, hey, there's this dude, Joseph. He understood. He could interpret our dreams. Pharaoh calls for Joseph. Joseph interprets the dreams. The Pharaoh goes, wow, God is with you. This is amazing. Uh, Pharaoh gets out of, brings Joseph out of jail. He becomes Pharaoh's right-hand man. The essence of the dream was, hey, Pharaoh, listen what's going to happen. You're going to have seven years of great harvests, followed by seven years of famine. So the plan is, in those seven years of harvest, you scoop up all the surplus uh, grain, you store all the grain, you buy up whatever you can, and in the seven years of famine, you, as the ruler of the country, will be able to keep your uh, people alive. And you'll be able to take that land from them in exchange for the grain, so expand the uh, reach of the state. Um, so that's what happens, and it goes incredibly well, and God is with him, and God blesses him. Along the way, his, uh, his family, when the famine hits, his family are starving uh, up in Canaan. There's no food, so they hear there's food in Egypt, so they come down to Egypt to come and get food. And, and Joseph then plays this weird series of, I don't know what he's doing, really. There's some weird stuff going on there where he, he starts progressively sort of stalking them, spying on them, planting silverware on his younger brother, Benjamin. Um, eventually, there's reconciliation, and it's wonderful. And, and Joseph says, hey, guys, it's great. Come in. He provides them. He saves his family. And then eventually, his old man, Jacob, dies... And we pick up the story then. So it's been years, right? And, and, and his, we pick up the story. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him um, because they were worried that he would be holding a grudge against them. Perhaps he will hold a grudge against them. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, this is where I meant to pick it up, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? They were very worried. They thought all these years Joseph had just been pretending to forgive them to keep his dad happy. Now dad's gone. Joseph is going to let rip with some justice. That is an example of the natural human process of unforgiveness. You hold a grudge. What does holding a grudge mean? It's you remember what they did. You remember. And it sits in your soul like poison. And you are just waiting for an opportunity to make them pay. Have you ever held a grudge? Oh. It's easy to hold a grudge. <laughs> I mean, you just think back over the people who've hurt you in your life and think back, if you think about punishing them or making them pay, there's a bit of a, yes, oh, I wish. 
Oh, it'd be so good. If only I could. That's that. And his brothers know that they deserve anything that Joseph would give them. They know that they deserve to die. That, that that's what justice demands. I mean, they had, they had sold him into slavery. They had wrecked his life. It's, these are the same words, by the way, um, back in Genesis 27. Esau, um, Jacob's brother, so Joseph's uncle, held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. So Jacob cheated Esau out of a blessing from his father, and Esau held a grudge. One of the, it, this isn't a biblical saying, but I think it should be. If I was writing the Bible, I'd put this in. Um, bitterness is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. Like that's what that's like holding a grudge is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. And it just makes it kills relationship. Holding a grudge at its core is saying, when I get the opportunity to pay you back, I will. The problem with holding a grudge, the problem with bitterness is it corrodes your soul. Because what it does is it corrodes your openness to relationship. It says, I don't want to relate to you. I want to punish you. I want to punish you. And that feels good initially, but it's poison to our souls. Because we're made for relationship. Aren't we? So... Um, Joseph then, said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? He says, it's not my job to judge you. I am not going to make you pay. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Um, what's interesting in this story is that uh, the brothers and Joseph understand fully and face fully the true nature of the evil that has occurred. Which is another way of saying that forgiveness requires truth. Okay, who amongst us really likes truth in relationships? Yeah, yeah yes. Sort of. Who amongst us really hates truth in relationships? Ah, come on, admit it. I'll tell you why I'm saying you're gonna. You should. I, the truth is, the truth is 
extraordinarily difficult. You see, what we are tempted to do when we face betrayal or wounding or hurt, or when we, as we do, betray or wound or hurt someone else, what we tend to do is we say, I don't want to, I can't face the full awfulness of this thing, so I'll minimize it. I'll pretend that it isn't as bad. I'll find a way of labeling it so I can move quickly to paper over it and get on with life and make this relationship work. Right? Um, there's a great fam- marriage therapist, Sue Johnson, uh, English born Canadian therapist great woman and I was listening to a podcast of hers and she says a very common question that is asked of her when one partner comes to talk to her and they have had they have uh, betrayed their partner through unfaithfulness they say to her hey uh, can you uh, I don't I don't want to tell my partner about the affair because that's in the past and sometimes it might even be 10 15 years in the past but, but it's in the past. I don't want to tell my partner about the affair. Can you just help us build a healthy marriage going forward? Sound like a good idea? Do you know what Sue says? She says, now this really works in Canada where houses have basements, right? She says, that would be like me helping you build a beautiful house when you've got a time bomb ticking away in the basement that could go off at any moment. And the time bomb is the, is the lie of the affair, right? And, and you can build a great thing, but, but if it's not built on truth, it's going to blow up. It could blow up. It will blow up at any moment. So what's interesting in this story is they all know the extent of the evil That is really, really, really hard to actually see someone's evil. Someone who has loved you and claimed to love you and should have loved you. And can someone close the door? Holy moly, were we born in a barn in Greece, Tom? <laughs> um, I'll tell you how this works out, right? Um, Why is it that so many adults, only in adult life, start to understand and name, perhaps in their 40s, the abuse that was inflicted on them as a child by perhaps a parent or a family member. It's a very common phenomena. You go through life, you have a traumatic background, you don't think about it too much, uh, and then somehow something unfolds for you and somewhere in your 40s you start to, you start to name and understand perhaps the sexual abuse or the domestic violence, intimate uh, domestic violence you experienced. Why does it take so long? Because it is excruciatingly, terrifyingly, frighteningly overwhelming to see the truth 
about a parent who might have abused you. It is, uh, and so it's, as human beings, we say, I just can't deal with that. So I won't allow myself to see the truth of what it is. And, and then I can get along with them, right? I can get along with them. And, and maybe even, you know, and I've, I've walked this path myself and I've walked it with many others. You, you can build some kind of a relationship with them and you can tell yourself you've forgiven them. But at the heart, you haven't forgiven them because you've never actually stared in the face the full awful truth of what they did to you and what they failed to protect you from and the damage that has done. And until you have stared that in the face and the perpetrator has stared that in the face and you've sat with each other and you've gone, this is the truth of the evil that you did to me or I did to you, until you get to that moment, your forgiveness is really a papering over with a time bomb waiting to explode underneath. And what I love about this story is there's no papering over. It's no pretense. There's no denial. There's no minimization. The brothers know, I deserve to, we deserve to die. And if... And if and if Joseph has held a grudge, he's entitled to it. Reconciliation the, is a movement of repentance and forgiveness. And reconciliation, the healing of a relationship, requires both, both. We, we get confused sometimes in the church because we think there needs to be, you know, unconditional forgiveness. Well, what does that really mean? Here's what I've come to think as I've studied the Bible and read and thought over many, many years. Forgiveness, the sort that Joseph is doing, is canceling the debt, not holding the grudge. You say, I will not hold, Joseph says to his brothers, I will not hold the past against you. I will not, I will not stop what you've done in the past, prevent me from being open to a relationship with you going forward. Forgiveness is the precondition for reconciliation to go forward. But reconciliation only happens and forgiveness is actually only actualized when what happens when the other party repents there's no reconciliation without repentance and for forgiveness to be actualized and and you'll only you know we can say in our heads oh in our hearts well i've forgiven so and so okay but you'll You'll only know if you have when that person comes to you and says, have you been holding a grudge against me? I've committed great evil against you and I would like to be open to a relationship with you going forward. Are you open to that? That's when you have to forgive. Oh. Because you see, the human tendency 
is when they come and say, I'd like to be open to a relationship with you, I've done X, Y, and Z, and brutally honest, one, one temptation is at that point to go, finally, I can punish you, I can crush you, I can make you pay for what you did, I will withhold relationship from you, or I'll enter into this relationship so I can make you miserable and make you pay. Forgiveness says, I'm not, I'm going to cancel the debt. But what forgiveness doesn't do and what God doesn't say we should do is lend them more money. Which is a way of saying, make yourself vulnerable to an abuser or a person who hasn't shown genuine deep fruits of, rep of repentance. We have a problem with domestic and intimate partner violence in our culture and in our church. The Anglican Church has just produced, they did this report of Anglicans and uh, domestic violence and intimate partner violence in, our, in, in the Anglican churchgoers. And one of the terrible, terrible things that has been done in the church over many, many, many years is you've had evil church leaders they may be evil because they didn't know any better or because they did, who have said to women, you must stay with your husband even while he beats the snot out of you because by your quiet submission, he will change his heart because that's the divine ordering of relationships. And that is so wrong. Cancel the debt. Okay, be open to a relationship, even in intimate partner violence. Get out of the relationship, get safe, get help, get support. Face fully the evil that has been done against you. And if the partner or the perpetrator gets to a place where they understand and see fully their evil and they come to you and in a safe place with a mediator, you are convinced and they are convinced and there is evidence through time that there has been a deep, profound change in their life and in their behavior that is fruit of repentance, then you can say, okay, now I will not hold the past against you. I will be open to explore what a relationship with you will look like, but I am not putting myself in a position to be abused again. I'm not lending you more money. terrible evil that happens when the misunderstanding of scripture way of marriage is wrapped up with a misunderstanding of what forgiveness looks like and is used to continue to push vulnerable people to stay in awful relationships Now, there's a whole lot of reasons why it's terribly hard to see intimate partner violence, abuse, evil for what it is. We've already covered that. It's very hard. In a group this size, there will be those of you who have suffered intimate partner violence or are suffering it, who have perpetrated it or are perpetrating it. And... Um, if you're in such a relationship, this is not a call to quick forgiveness. It says, get out, get safe, get help. That's what we're here for.
And if you're perpetrating it or have perpetrated, get out, get safe, get help, repent. Now, should, if you've forgiven someone, should you still go to the police and press charges against them? Yes or no? I hear yes. But you've forgiven them. They've repented. Truth. Not just truth. Consequences. You see, if you're open, if you cancel the debt against somebody who has committed evil towards you, what you want is for them ultimately to be reconciled to their God to be healed and restored and flourish as a human being. And that will not happen unless they understand who they really are, unless they experience accountability. So sometimes, you know, the best, the thing that teaches us most about our own evil are the consequences of our actions. So I would say uh, reporting, sometimes going to jail is the most loving thing that can happen to somebody. Because sometimes it's that that will actually, is the only thing that will move them to confront the evil that they've done. And it's only when they confront their evil that they can repent and they can find grace and healing and hope. You don't, I mean this is uh, the key, the deepest motivation for reporting an abuser to the authorities is a longing for their ultimate restoration to God. Now there's a motivation above that that is longing for justice, and that's a good motivation. But the thing that Christianity opens up for us is a deeper longing, which is, Lord, have mercy on them. Lord, spare them. Lord, restore them. what Joseph did, right? He says, I'm not in God's place, but I, I will save you. God will use me and my forgiveness of you to save me. How did Joseph do this? Well, he says these interesting things. And it, it's, how do you and I get the power to do this? Well, verse 20 is one of the most extraordinary verses, isn't it? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. I can look back on my life and uh, I have known God to be with me and God to work amazing good in my life over many, many years in, the spite, in spite of and through the evil that has been perpetrated against me. And you've had evil perpetrated against you. And I'm calling it evil. We don't like to think of it like that. But let's call evil relational violence, lies, betrayal, harm. And you know what? God intends only for your good. The single most, I suspect, the single most healing and challenging and empowering truth that I have found in Christianity is that God is at work in everything that happens to me for my greatest good and his greatest glory. 
That's hard, eh? That's hard. And I say that when I, as I look back over my life and my childhood, and I go, that's a childhood of, full of adverse childhood experiences. I grew up in a country at war. I grew up with an alcoholic personality disordered father who was spectacularly poorly suited to parenting, who subjected our family to all kinds of evil. I grew up with a mother who, because of her own intergenerational trauma as a Jewish refugee, was unable to be present to love and to care for and to protect me from the evil that came upon me. I grew up with a brother, personality disordered, who tortured me through most of my growing up. I grew up in a country full of violence, conscription, all the men around me with post-traumatic stress, substance addiction. Grew up with a dad who ended up in jail. I grew up with a church where I came to faith and the guy who brought me to faith sexually abused me along with all the other teenage boys that he could get his hands on over the course of 25 years and the church covered it up. And you know what? I look at that and I go, oh Lord, couldn't you have done something different in my life? Like I would have liked something different. But from the vantage point, 30 years on, I look back and I go, these people intended it for evil and carried out evil against me. But God, you've loved me in all of that. You were with me. And in a mysterious way that I do not get, God has used all of that trauma in my life for the saving of many lives, starting with my own and then my mother, and then my Jewish grandmother, and then you all, to the extent that God is using me and even using this experience and all the self-disclosure that I'm doing right now. This is, this is God using all of that to bring good out of it. You know, this is what God does. And, and it is hard. And I also want to say, I, like Joseph Holding on to bitterness and a grudge is the path of death. So I thank God that from a very young age, as soon as I became a Christian, I understood and I grappled with and I started thinking about what forgiveness actually looked like. And I could go to all the various people who had committed evil against me and at various times I have prayed for them and I've said I've forgiven them. And to the extent that they were open to confront their own evil and repent, I was open to say I could explore a relationship going forward. Of course, it's a little more complex than that now. Most of them are dead. So that's complicated. And I, I suspect that and as I look out, people who've hurt you may well be dead or not around. Where do you get the power to do that? Well, because Joseph knew God was with him, that God had forgiven him. Where do I get the power to do that? Well, more than knowing that, more than Joseph's experience, I, I know I have one greater than Joseph. I know that God has forgiven me at a great cost. 
Rather than making me pay the price for what I have done, the evil I have done, what God has done in Jesus Christ is absorbed the penalty and the brokenness of the evil into himself. Jesus is the greater Joseph, unjustly accused, stripped of his robe, abandoned, who didn't just get thrown into prison in a pit, he actually died. And when Jesus was in the pit of the cross, it, God wasn't even with him. What, he went even further than Joseph. God abandoned him. And in that God abandonedness, God forsakenness, there's the, in a, a mysterious, unfathomable way, Jesus took the, the, the broken relationship with God that I deserved, absorbed that into his own being, and then gave to me an unbreakable sense of love. That there is nothing that can separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Not the sins of my parents and my youth group leader and the insurgents in Rhodesia and the South African Defense Force and the abusers at school and brokenness and pain and rejection and heartache and attack in ministry and all that stuff. Nothing. Nothing can separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And because I am so loved and I am so forgiven, who am I not to forgive others? If God has forgiven me, there I can start to find the power to not hold the grudge. Forgiveness, it it doesn't mean that every time Joseph saw his brothers, he didn't remember that awful moment when they chucked him in the pit to kill him. I reckon he remembered that every day for the rest of his life. And it hurt every day for the rest of his life, I reckon. You know why I think that? Because that's how trauma works. There's not a day in my life, and there's certainly not a week in my life, when I don't remember the intergenerational trauma of the Shoah, of the Holocaust, of my family dying, being refugees. It's not a day goes by when I don't remember and I don't feel some of the hurt that I accumulated in the, early, in my, the first 20 years of my life. And there are very few days when, when we don't feel the pain, right? And, and, and we can sometimes think, that means I haven't forgiven. You go, no, 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 no. There's only one being in the world who can forgive and forget. And who's that? God. God is the only being who says, as far as the east is from the west, I will cast uh, your sins away from you. He says, I won't remember your sins. This side of heaven we will always remember and we will feel the pain of the evil that is inflicted against us by people. Now that pain can diminish and it gets processed for sure. But that you still feel the pain and that it is still hard to deal with it and that our bodies carry the trauma within us doesn't mean that we aren't on the right track of forgiveness. Christians sometimes say you've got to forgive and forget in the church because we're uncomfortable with strong negative emotions <laughs> and we want everyone just to get along and for it all to be great i think it's yeah i, I wonder if joseph hated his brothers at some level i wonder in the story what did he make of potiphar's wife 
I wonder if when Potiphar and his wife turned up for a food handout, if he gave her food to keep her alive. I wonder that. But it must have hurt. Must have hurt. So we forgive because we've been forgiven. And we trust that the God who died for us understands how hard and painful it is to live in this world and understands the pain of existence and the pain of just how much we hurt each other in life. I mean, we don't, even when we don't intend to, we hurt each other all the time. And God knows that and he's with us in that and he gives us the power to say, I won't hold the past against you. We'll seek reconciliation. So, that was a light Sunday morning. I hope it's been helpful. Let's pray. Lord God, as the kids come in now, we're reminded that there's a new future. Whatever burdens and baggage we have, you're always bringing new life into the world, and we thank you for that. And I pray for each of us in this room that you will give us the grace and the courage to forgive and that you'll give us the grace and the courage to repent where we need to repent and that reconciliation might flow in all our relationships as a result. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.